Good morning, church. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 6. If you're visiting today, my name is Mark, and I'm one of the ministers here on staff. We're glad you've joined us. Uh, We're in this series we're calling The Return. And uh, on Monday night, uh, we've been talking about this now for the past uh, three weeks. This is the fourth. Uh, We've been talking about what the vision of our church is and where we're going with that. On Monday night, we had an opportunity for the staff and the elders and some families in our church to gather uh, to begin the process of collecting the return responses, the commitment cards that you've received in your booklet. And uh, uh, so Monday night, we had a real special night with some families that gathered together who wanted to lead in committing and turning in their cards, and just very blessed to be able to share that 50 uh, different families have responded with commitments to the return, and uh, we celebrate that, and we appreciate uh, that people are seeing the vision and and affirming what the elders have believed is that God's leading us in this way. Part of that night was to uh, collect some uh, information from folks, why they were participating, why they were uh, joining us in this, and the commitments that they were making, and we'd like you to watch this video with us uh, of the responses to what they were willing to sacrifice and why they're committing themselves to this. We are committed to the return challenge because we want to see the kingdom furthered. I'm excited to see what God's going to do in people's lives. And because of what so many people gave before us, we've, we've experienced what we've experienced here. We want to give that back to somebody. I'm actually pretty excited about the idea of paying down debt that would enable us to be able to use the budget to do some other things, especially like in partnering with different world partners. Whenever we started talking about what we could do to commit to the return challenge, um, of course there is the financial component that we've talked about and committed to, but at the same time we just became recommitted um, to having devotional time at home with our children, making sure that we're having devotional time on our own, and um, as a couple. I'm excited to be committed to it because I know that the Lord is going to do something far greater than what I could have done on my own. I can't reach fifth and sixth graders on my own. I can't uh, get the church out of debt on my own. And so when I get to be committed to the call of Christ and committed to even just the financial calling that he's called us to, um, then we get to accomplish so much more. I'm super excited about the return challenge, mainly because because of this more more people are going to hear the name of Christ. I am excited um, for the return channel challenge for the opportunity that they, for us to be able to sponsor the missions. We have been saving to um, blacktop our driveway. We decided that to blacktop that would just be a convenience for us and uh, figured every time the car bottoms out in the pothole, maybe I can say a prayer that one more person is <laughs> going to come to Christ. My wife and I, as, as a family, decided uh, what we were going to give, and we're going to try to double what we've given uh, in years past. Our kids have also decided they really enjoy giving to the right here, right now, and they don't want to give that up, and so they've decided to give above and beyond that. So they filled out a card and got to turn that in, and that was exciting uh, for them to do as a group. And um, I think they even have plans of lemonade stands and selling some toys and things like that. I've been here since the church started and every time we have needed to expand like this 10 million dollars we have thought there's no way we can raise that amount of money but if God wants it to happen he's going to make it happen.
that's what encourages me is the stories of families that are seeing the opportunity. Uh, if you are just visiting with us, the doors on the stage represent opportunities that we think God has opened for us to walk through. For some people, it's to invite them into something, and for a lot of it, it's for us to go out of these doors into the world and make a difference. Uh, in the main foyer here uh, at our big building is a return table. If you've not received the booklet, we really would encourage you and ask you to pick one up this week and read through it. It won't take you very long. It'll answer the questions, what are we hoping to do? Why are we hoping to do it? <clears throat> and what it will take from all of us to bring that about. And so uh, we encourage you also to pick up a key. If you weren't here last week, part of our worship service was asking everyone to, to pick up a key and to hold on to it for the next few weeks. Next Sunday, uh, November 17th, we're going to collect the commitment cards as an part of our <clears throat> worship service. Uh, you've received one in the booklet if you've already taken a booklet. Uh, if not, there's some available on the, the table as well as these keys. And we ask that you would take this, hold on to it during the week, and uh, pray this week that God might lead you and others uh, to respond in a way that he can show us what he wants us to do, how much of the challenge in front of us he wants us to go after. Are we able to do it all or what pieces? And so we really are excited about what God's doing. To hear the stories of families uh, that are giving certain things up, that are saying no to themselves so they can say yes to others, uh, to hear Mrs. Witherspoon, one of our charter members, tell us that she's seen God be faithful throughout this process so many times and uh, for her response of faith. Uh, these are just moments that are very, very important to us as a church. And we would just uh, encourage you over the next two years to ask yourself what you can do. And then next week, we're going to bring that together as an act of worship. In week one of our series, we went to John chapter 21, where Jesus confronts Peter on a beach after Peter's epic fail. And Jesus asks him a question, do you love me? And when Peter says, Lord, you know I failed, but I do love you, then Jesus says, I'm going to give you something to do. I want you to serve others. Go feed my sheep. As the great shepherd, he said, I have these sheep, and there's, they're looking for a shepherd. I need someone to serve them and take care of them. And Peter willingly volunteered and ended up giving his life to do that. In week two, we looked at the great commission where Jesus told them how to serve. He said, go make disciples. Teach them to observe, baptizing them into my kingdom, inviting them into what I'm doing. And then he made two promises. He says, you go in my authority... And I will be with you in the end. When, when you're done, I'll be there. And I will bless, by my authority, I'll bless your obedience. So we learn that loving God is serving God. And trusting God is being obedient. Last week we looked at what the word trust means from Proverbs chapter 3 and some other various texts. Where we learned that trusting means that God has to be our sole source. And you can spell the word soul however you want. Both of them work. He has to be our sole source. The only thing that sustains us. The only thing that we're really betting ourselves on. So we return to Jesus for his love. We give a return back to Jesus because he has blessed us so much. And then we trust him and live our lives inviting people to come back to him before he returns. But today we're not going to talk as much about trust and, or excuse me, about treasures and time and talent as we're going to talk about the word trust in the face of fear. Uh, one of the things when I was designing this particular series, I thought there's going to be a moment in time where most of us will get to the point where we'll say, yes, I need to trust God more, but we're scared. And I think trust is most shown when there's fear, when there's reason to be uncomfortable. 
This is a true story. There was a thunderstorm rolling into this town, and this mom was putting her son to bed, and the, the, light, or the, the sky was lighting up with lightning, and you could hear the rumble of thunder, and she was getting him tucked in, hoping he'd fall asleep before the storm hit. And About the time she was doing so, this big rumble of thunder came right over the house and shook everything, and the little boy got scared, and he said, Mommy, will you sleep with me tonight? She smiled and kissed him on the forehead, and she said, No, honey, uh, you'll be okay. I can't. I have to sleep with Daddy tonight. And she said she turned to leave the room, and she heard her son saying in a shaking voice, the big sissy. <laughs> Trust is most real when you're scared, right? We all know that, when you're frightened. And we all have that one thing we don't want anybody to know about, that deep down inside, we're just a little messed up by it. Whether it's snakes or spiders or loud, strange, surprising noises or darkness, we all have something. You know, I, I realize mine's height. I hate being, I just feel so unsafe and uncomfortable. And, and I hate to be on a ladder when someone else is in the room because I can't fake it. Knees are shaking, I'm wobbling, I'm finding out if I fell, I'm going this direction, I'm planning it out. When trust has to be real when you have fear. If you take, and I read this recently and I believe it. If you take Jesus' teaching and you boil them down, when he's talking to crowds, not individuals, when you take his teaching, there's two predominant thoughts. This isn't all he's saying, but there's some predominant thoughts in it, and that is that Jesus is warning us about living for the approval of men. And then he's warning us about having a security that is not God. He, when we're worried about what other people think of us instead of what God thinks about us, then we become like the Pharisees. We practice a religion that makes us look good and not a religion that draws us into God's goodness. And when we are concerned about having a security based on our ability to control things, then we're not relying on God as our sole provider. And so today, I want to read a passage in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. When Jesus is teaching a crowd, it's Luke's recording of that reoccurring message. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, but I believe Jesus preaches almost all the time. It was his sermon, and it's, it's a unique passage. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Do not judge, or excuse me, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you, a good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's a unique passage, and I... I before I give you some observations, I want to make this point. I don't like it. This passage makes me uncomfortable. Why? Because this passage requires trust. This is countercultural and it's counterintuitive. To, to have someone who hates me and to enter into their world and give them more access to me, I'm not a fan. 
I don't know that I'm interested. Remember what we said. Today's not as much about time, treasure, and talents as it is about trust. And how do I trust when I'm scared? When I have fear and insecurity? When I have doubts and questions? That I need to trust more, not less, if I want to live by trust. So this passage is not easy. The reason I chose it is this is controversial. This is one of those moments when the game gets tough that most players quit, but real players play. I want to give you three observations from the text that kind of sets the culture for where we're going this morning. First observation is this. Our behavior is to be out of control. Our control. To live the way God is calling us to live, to trust Jesus as our sole provider and the leader of our lives and Lord, we've got to be out of control. It's where trust meets our fears and we continue to walk through our fear instead of stopping. We have to trust our trust and instead of trusting our doubts. And so we have to, we're going to be out of control. Jesus says to be loving to unloving people. Now he doesn't say to be loving to unlovable people. He says to be loving to unloving people. And he says, love your enemies. Show them love. Don't just say, well, I'd love them if I came near them. He says, show it. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Don't respond to insults and provocation. Someone slaps you in the cheek. That was an insult. That wasn't let someone beat you to death. In context, when someone insulted you and slapped you in your face, don't fight back. You don't have to stand there and get pummeled, but don't fight back. Let, let the Lord defend you. Trust him. That's a tough teaching. The back half of this is a lot easier for us. We'll gloss through the first half and go, well, I can't do that. I'll work on the other half. No, he doesn't give us the option. You either trust or you don't. The second piece of that is bless those less fortunate than yourselves. And don't do it to be noticed. You know, one of the things I've loved about this church from the moment I got here is our our elders are not a, we don't believe in a church that hands out the big golf check that walks around town doing good things so we can get photo ops. I love that about this church. Just do what you're supposed to do and let God get the glory. And then it all goes well anyway. And so Jesus said, don't live in such a way that everybody notices what you're doing. So we're going to be out of control if we live a trusting life. A second observation is our behavior is to be modeled after God's. Jesus says in verse 36, be merciful just as your father is. Everything Jesus did was to reveal the father to us. So what you see in Jesus is of God. And if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And so I ask you a question. It's a real simple question. Did Jesus demonstrate everything we just read we're supposed to demonstrate? Absolutely. So the model is in front of us. It can be done. Now, if you're smart right now, you're measuring what it costs Jesus. And that's part of the trust in the face of fear. The third observation I make just initially is, but this behavior has promised benefits. God rewards those who obey and trust. We learned that last week in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, if you weren't here. I encourage you to go online and listen to the sermon. I don't know if it was a great sermon, but the truth was there. Or read the text. Our behavior has benefits. Verse 35, your reward will be great. Now, what's amazing is God doesn't tell us when we're going to receive it. Sometimes it's a little bit now, maybe all of it later. It doesn't matter. Just do we trust the Lord that he will provide what he says he'll provide? 
And what I love is in three times, in verses 32, 33, and 34, Jesus presents a situation where we can seemingly be doing something trusting, but we're only doing it because it fits our ego and our own benefit. He says, what credit is to you? What credit is it to you? What credit is it to you when you do good things to good people? Or when you do the right thing in the right crowd to get the right notice? He said, if that's why you're doing what you're doing, it doesn't matter to me. But if you're doing the right thing in the hard, fearful moments, when it's hard. That's why I've said today's message is about being out of control and uncomfortable. Biblically, that's what it means to trust the Lord. To give up our security. To give up what people think about us. So we can live in such a way that Jesus Christ is noticed. And then in Luke chapter 6, verse 38... And, and I want to be really, I just want to be clear this morning. If, if you read this and you're thinking about money, you're missing the point. It is so much bigger and vaster than this. That Satan wants us to think right now, well, here he goes, here's the ask. No, no, I'm going to ask for something greater than what's in your wallet or your bank account. I'm going to ask for something more significant than that. Let's read it. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. For whatever measure you deal out to others, it will be dealt out to you in return. It's interesting. God says, if you do the uncomfortable, out-of-control things I'm asking you to do by faith, I will bless your life in so many ways. But, but be careful. God doesn't always return like for like. You may sacrifice financially and God bless you in another way. You may sacrifice physically and get involved and active and give your time and God may bless you in a completely different way. God doesn't reveal to us how he's going to reward us, but he says at the end of the day you won't be disappointed with what I give you in return. I'll take care of you. So I'm going to ask you two questions this morning and show you what the Bible teaches about them. The first question is, how do I live out of control? If, if trusting God means I, I give up my control... I'm going to live an out-of-control life where I'm going to have to trust God to fill in the gaps that I can't fill in. The first thing is you need to offer God what he really wants. That's the first thing I want you to think about. Not what you think he wants, but what he really wants. Because it's, it's bigger than time or treasure or talents. He wants the one who possesses the time, who possesses the treasure, and who possesses the talent. And when he was talking to a church, the Apostle Paul wrote to them about an opportunity for them to be generous. And in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, they gave according to their ability and beyond their ability. How do you give beyond your ability? You know, it's like the sports axiom, which just drives me nuts. He gave 110%. I don't think any of us have ever given 100% once. To say they gave 110%, Paul says they gave 110%. How can you give beyond your ability to give? Verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 8. Because they first gave themselves to the Lord. What allows you to give more than you can when God uses what you give? When God uses what you give, then it's going to be a far greater value than anything that the world can measure. Trust begins when I totally give myself to Jesus. Everything I am. Out of control and incredibly uncomfortable. It's called trust. And we have to offer ourselves every day. We have to give God what he really wants, and you have to do it every morning. Listen to Romans 12.1, very famous passage of scripture. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, 
to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, and this is your spiritual act of worship. It's waking up every morning. Patrick Mead, a wonderful preacher, he says that the problem with being a living sacrifice is you can crawl off the altar. A dead sacrifice just lays there, no will. A living sacrifice assumes the position. And what's interesting here is every day we wake up, instead of, uh, every day I wake up, I need to ask myself the question, am I going to build God's kingdom today or am I going to build my own? And it's really that clean of a decision. Because what I find is, if I'm building my kingdom within the kingdom of God, it's a wonderful place. When I build my kingdom outside of the kingdom of God, it's a mess. You know, I, I, could, I could start every marathon this world runs. I couldn't finish any of them. And did you begin your walk with Christ called Christianity to start or to finish? For many of us, we say, well, I, I, be, I was a Christian. I, became, I know for a fact I was uh, baptized into Christ on September 29th, 1974. That's when I started the race. That didn't finish anything. That began my journey. And my ultimate goal in life is not to say I started it. My ultimate goal is for Jesus to drag my sorry tail across the line. So at the end of it, I go, yeah, Jesus. Because I'm going to be exhausted. And if, not, if I'm not exhausted in the race of faith, then I really can't say what Paul says when he said, I fought the good fight. I, I finished the race. I did the thing set before me. So I, I want to tell you, give God what he's really after, and you have to give it to him every day. It's a choice every day to take up your cross and follow him. John 13, Jesus said, if you know these things, if you know what I'm teaching you, if you know what I'm calling you to, if you know who I am, if you know these things, you will be blessed if you what? If you do them. If you step into the darkness of your fear with your trust. You see, real faith will ask from you what's most important to you. I want you to think about that. Real faith will ask from you what's most important to you. If, if your faith is not challenging you to go where you don't want to go, to say what you're not comfortable saying, and to become what you're not interested in becoming, then you're not being tested by the faith that Jesus calls from us. You see, this is so much bigger than what's in your wallet or what's on your calendar or what's in your abilities. This is about trusting when it's scary. So that's what it's going to look like to be out of control. And what will I experience when I'm out of my comfort? What does the Bible promise me? Jesus says, love your enemy, face your persecutors, don't retaliate, give love, give love, give love. What do we have in front of us? Well, being a living sacrifice puts all things into biblical perspective. If you want to know why the Bible makes sense in every corner of your life, you have to trust it first. We often say around here, faith is always found on the other side of obedience. It's when you've walked with your fear and your trust at the same time that you're truly obedient when you're out of control and uncomfortable. Matthew 6, Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. Church, I, I need to ask you. You guys have been really quiet the last couple weeks because it's getting personal, I know. I need to ask you a question to testify to the people around you here today. Do you believe that anything you would lack in life, Jesus is able to deliver? And do you believe that he'll do it because he loves you? So what's he asked of us? Seek his kingdom over your own. Choose to step into your fear and discomfort for something greater. Our problem is whether or not we trust him. It's not whether or not he's 
able to be trusted. Do we get that? Trust always comes down to our faithfulness. It's never about his, because he'll always be faithful. Second of all, if you want to be a living sacrifice, it will protect you against material enslavement. See, we love comfort. I've realized I battle my weight a lot. I battle my weight because I'm in love with feeling full. It's the only way I can explain it. I think the greatest pleasure in life is for me to have to lay on the couch and moan. I don't get it, but it's, it's true. I love knowing I can have as much as I want and two bites more, and I hate that about myself. It's so much the flesh, I'm enslaved to it. I find myself saying, it's time to eat, not that I'm hungry. And all of us have these moments in our life where our comfort becomes our God. Do you know an idol is anything that replaces your need for the God? I know what my idols are clearer. Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve two masters. God and, now the word there, money, is a weird translation. It's a word called mammon. It means treasures. Treasures aren't always what you can spend. Treasures are what you worship. Things of value. For you will either hate one or love the other. There was a couple that went to a county fair and they saw an old biplane, the old kind with the open cockpit, three seats, and, and it was $25 a plane ride. And the, the old man who was with his wife was really tight. They wanted to get in the plane because they hadn't been one since they were just kids out on the farm. And he really wanted to go, but he thought 25 bucks per person was too much. And he went up and he said, how about $25 for the two of us? And the, the pilot said, no, sir, it's $25 a piece. And the old man started to walk away and his wife began to follow. And the pilot said, well, wait a second, okay, how about you give me $50? I'm going to take you for a ride. If neither one of you say a word, I'll give you your $50 back. If you say a word, I keep the 50 bucks. The wife looked at her husband, and he finally relented, gave the man $50, and they got in the plane. Pilot took off. He's going to earn his money. He did barrel rolls. He was flipping them around. He was dipping and diving. In fact, he was actually making himself sick, and he pulled the plane down on the fairgrounds, and he got out, and he was so mad that they didn't say a word. He was seething. Without even looking around, he said back to the old man, he goes, he goes, I gave you back your $50. I can't believe you didn't say a thing. And the old man said, when my wife fell out, I almost did. <laughs> the question is, where's your God really at? If you've been going through our small group material in the booklet, you'll notice that about two weeks, three weeks ago, there was a startling question. It, I've thought about it ever since I read it. And the question was this, if you were told today you have no money and you were told you had no God, which one would make you most upset? And when I read that question, I knew the answer. I wasn't going to answer out loud. But I thought, well, you know, with money, I can control my life and make myself comfortable and provide for my family. If there's, if there's no God, well, then maybe I would, oh, my goodness, how sick am I inside? And I realized that I, God's calling me to surrender the God of my life for the real one. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, Paul wrote to a young preacher and he said, Instruct those Christians who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope in uncertainty of riches. Now I want you to notice there, there's no curse on having wealth. There's no curse in having wealth. But to fix their hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good work, to be generous. So instead of beating people up for being wealthy, and in the world today, if you and your family make over $38,000, you're in the top 4% of the richest people in the entire world. So it's pretty safe to say we're all rich. 
We all have blessings. He says in verse 19, store up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Paul says, we are to encourage each other what the real life is, not what the rich life is. Not what the American dream is. Not how to have so much. We're to encourage each other that there is so much more than things in this world. So, living sacrifice puts things in biblical perspective. It takes us away from slavery to the things of this world. Thirdly, it strengthens our faith. Being a living sacrifice will strengthen your faith. It's hard and it brings discomfort and it makes us feel out of control. But God put a challenge in front of us in Malachi chapter 3. He says, I want you to test me in this. The only time in all of scripture, God gives you permission to test him. See if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing that there is no more need. God says, will you trust me? Put me first and see if I abandon you. Or put me first knowing I won't. It's a matter of trust versus fear. The fourth thing is being a living sacrifice makes me more like Jesus. Now, that's probably how you ought to end every sermon, but we'll keep going. If you wake up every day like Jesus did, let me ask you just two questions. Was was Jesus in control of every moment of his life here on earth? No. He was out of control. Was he comfortable every moment of his life here on earth? Absolutely not. He even said, I don't have a place to lay my head. I only have the clothes on my back. I don't have that much. I don't have possessions. He was reliant on other people. But he lived out of control and uncomfortable because he knew who had control of his life and who was his comfort. It was God both times. Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Notice it's an attitude. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Interesting. I I like to just paraphrase it. Jesus gave up the best parts of being God, being in control and being comfortable to come here on earth and be less of both for you and me. Paul says, carry the same attitude. It, It puts things in perspective. It gets us away from the slavery to the things of the world. It strengthens our faith because God proves himself faithful. It makes us more like Jesus than the last thing. And you, you might think I'm playing with words, but this it's just there. Being a living sacrifice is evidenced by a return. This is why I trust. When I was a little kid, my dad would send, we had an old two-story house, and we had, a, I know exactly, we had eight steps to the top. And they were big, long steps. This was an old, old house. And my dad would send me upstairs to my room to get something or send me upstairs to get a bath or something, and I would go upstairs. I had no problem going upstairs until it became nighttime when it got dark upstairs. And I hated going in that old house. And I would say, Dad, Dad, come with me. And he's lazy like I am. He's like, no, no, you just get upstairs and go do it. And I could go up those steps in like two, two bounds because I knew about five or six feet in on the wall in this old house was the light switch. It was the old kind that had the two push buttons. It wasn't even a switch. I had to press in there. Just the other day, we, I, was, I listened to the 70s channel on Sirius. It's my kind of music, I guess. And the song by Manhattan Transfer Operator came on. And it was, it's just a wonderful song. And I was singing along, and Braden was humming along, and we get done, and Braden looks at me and goes, Dad, what's an operator? And I about died. <laughs> I thought, he has no clue about calling an operator, asking for a connection, and I almost wept. But in this house, there was no light switch, just two stiff buttons you had to shove in to make the connection. 
and I would reach as quick as I could without ever putting my feet in the darkness. And I'd come busting downstairs. I could go downstairs in one step. I'd land at the bottom. I'd be all out of breath, and my dad would ask me that horrifying question. Did you turn all the lights off? Oh, heavens no. Because when the lights are on, the monsters can't get me. And he would look at me, and he'd say, hey, go turn off the lights. I hated that. I was scared of the dark, scared of being alone, scared it was upstairs. Listen to what Jesus says in the face of our fear about our trust. He says it through the Apostle Paul to a church. Look at these. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Remember, have the same attitude Christ had. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. There is a door of opportunity for every one of us to give God what he wants, you. See, the return challenge will work when every one of us knows Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And it will be a win when everyone we know is introduced and offered the same opportunity. This isn't about coming to church on Sunday. Churches are full of people on Sunday who have not given themselves to Jesus. This is all about taking that step, going from the light into the darkness. It's taking that step that makes me uncomfortable. I don't like heights. I don't want to be alone in a dark place. The challenge for this church is to take that one step from where you are to where God wants you to be. Asking yourself to question, as scared as I am, as risky as this is, as uncomfortable as it makes me, as out of control it makes me feel, do I believe when Jesus said, and I will be with you there always, even until the end of the age? I'd like those that will be serving us this morning with communion, if you'd make your way to the back. I'd like to talk to us while they're preparing to serve us that on that night that Jesus took that loaf of bread and that glass of wine, what he said to his disciples was, for as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming who I am. Jesus gave up control. And he gave up comfort. So people like you and me could know who he was and be saved from our sins. And he says, do you love me? Then go take care of other people. Go teach them my truth. Go present to them the gospel. Go offer them hope. Take this to the world. Offer them my joy, my love. Because as often as you proclaim my death until I come again, you're proclaiming who I am. The return challenge for all of us is not just about filling a card out next week and bringing it, declaring what your family is willing to sacrifice. It's about believing that the sacrifice of Jesus needs to be communicated needs to be shared, needs to change the history of people's lives. Just like Jesus changed ours that night when he said to God in the garden, is there any other way for me to do this? And God said, no, son. I need you to do what I've asked you to do. And Jesus gave up control and he gave up comfort and he gave up his life. And we're blessed. Let's pray. 
Father, we receive this today because we know who you are. And we give back to you our love and our commitment. God, thank you for being patient with us as living sacrifices. Sometimes I get on and off the altar five times a day and you're still patient because you understand that I'm scared. You understand that this is a risk and you're good to us because you demonstrate your risky love that you loved us while we were yet sinners. And this morning as we take this bread and this juice, this doesn't cleanse us, that's already been done. This is a memory, this is a testimony, this is a moment that we get to thank you for loving us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our actions, in spite of our attitudes. And God, may we leave here today blessed and encouraged to love you, to serve you, to sacrifice for you, and to proclaim you as our Lord and Savior. And it's in the name of Jesus, the lover of our souls, we pray. Amen.